electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Bono and Eisen. Tonight on Fast, a big call on big oil. One top analyst says these two energy empires should join forces. He'll make his case straight ahead. Plus, the mouse that roared will tell you about big battle brewing between Disney and the state of California. And later, break out your credit card because a bunch of retail names are hitting record highs. Find out if you should add any to your shopping list. We kick things off with a tale of two love stories. First, a marriage of money managers. Morgan Stanley buying Eaton Vance for $7 billion in cash and stock. The deal sending Eaton Vance shares skyrocketing, a heart-thumping 50% today. More on that straight ahead. But it's not all rainbows and butterflies. IBM is caught in a bad romance. And a classic case of it's not you, it's me. Big Blue is dumping its IT infrastructure unit so it can focus on the cloud. The separation sending shares uh, sharply higher by almost 6% today. So let's get to Deirdre Bosa with more on the Big Blue breakout. Debo. Well, IBM has seen little love from investors, too, over the last nearly decade. So IBM trying a different tack here, splitting itself into two, announcing this morning that it will list its IT services unit as a separate company with a new name by the end of next year. So essentially separating its shrinking legacy business from its much faster growing and higher margin cloud computing business. Now, investors initially cheering that move, as Melissa said, sending shares up about 6% today. CEO Arvind Krishna reminded investors that IBM divested networking back in the 90s, PCs in the 2000s, and semiconductors about five years ago because they didn't play into the value proposition. But now, of course, he needs to execute. Ginny Rometty's turnaround plan yielded very little for investors, and shares have underperformed the broader tech sector and other legacy tech names like Oracle, HP, and Intel. But remember, too, guys, that a few years ago, IBM was all about artificial intelligence and Watson. Krishna said last year that data-related challenges led to clients halting or canceling AI projects. And these days, Watson is barely mentioned on earnings calls. Now, cloud computing may be more promising, but IBM was late to the game here and still far behind the giants in this space, Microsoft, Amazon, and Google, when it comes to public cloud. Back over to you, Melissa. All right, Deidre, thank you. Deidre Bosa. Um, let's trade this. Guy Dimey, I've got a question. I'll start off with you this evening. Oh, you start with a question. Uh, the, this always confuses me. Sorry. The question is, does this spinoff actually further IBM's turnaround plan, or is this just financial engineering? It's financial. It's the latter, as they say. Hello, Melissa. It's, I think it's the latter. Uh, you know, if IBM was really clever, they should just rename the com- new company uh, Red Hat 2, because that's effectively what it is if you really want to boil it down. I don't think it necessarily changes anything. I think it really puts a fine point on what they've been trying to accomplish. There was a time and place where IBM had a premium valuation because of their, they had visibility and they had a recurring revenue stream that gave them a multiple, probably better than the market at a certain point. They're trying to get back to that now, and that's what this is telling the market. In terms of the stock, in my opinion, I think you've just been handed a gift we traded up to and closed right at the level we topped out at, I think, on June 5th. 
Uh, to quote the Steve Miller band, which is an awful song, decent band, I would take the money and run here on IBM. Yeah. Karen, what are your thoughts? And I, I asked whether or not this is financial engineering because this is a company that is known for financial engineering. I mean, Deidre had just outlined the number of businesses they've divested over the years. Uh, but then you overlay that with the n- number of share buybacks they've done as well to shrink their share count. Um, and and that, that, of course, is the first question that comes to mind. Is this part of a true evolution of its business or is this just sort of making the business look better? I think we're having some problems with Karen's uh, mic, so we'll work on that. And in the meantime, we'll go to Bonowin. Bonowin, I'll pose the same question to you. Listen, I think it's uh, I think it's a bit of both. So yeah, on face value, it definitely is financial engineering. I mean, it's a divestment of a company, right? So clearly, I mean that 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 fits the bill of the definition of what it is. With that said. It's really, you know, a, a matter of whether or not they can deliver on what they're trying to do here. And, like, I can definitely see some value in focusing down on cloud computing. If we look at some of the other companies, CrowdStrike, I mean, I could give you, we can go ad nauseum about these, about these companies and look at the valuations that they demand from the cloud computing business. Focusing on that and AI, to me, you know, it's a testament to a strategic shift. Now, they've, they've done this before, but I'm hesitant to, you know, bash a company for realizing that there is a need to pivot, taking on a bold move, and then pivoting in, in you know, a like-step direction. So for me, I, I think it's an honest attempt at unlocking shareholder value here and forming a more accretive company. So I guess the question is, Tim, would, do you buy into this um, evolution well, I guess we're quoting Steve Miller tonight. I don't think this stock will be flying like an eagle, but I do nice. think you have a case where uh, the, the valuation in mega cap tech land gives them some room to, 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 to trade higher. Uh, I think the, the guys have framed the, the debate here pretty well. Um, the, it's actually going to be the NUCO is going to be spinning out their global technology services. And, you know, that's been a core business for them. It hasn't really grown, but um, there has been some residual core value for even the red hat of that business. So you have to be careful to assume this is totally accretive. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, the, the, the focus on the cloud, um, you heard from management today, they essentially pre-announced and gave some guidance, um, but that the, the, the growth level for this business, if you're talking about single mid, mid digits, um, is roughly the growth we're talking about here. It's hard to get blown away. Um, if you look at the chart, so for investors who are just kind of trading these things, I think if you look at 160, that would really be a level where this stock is broken out of this range. We've traded in this range, and if you look at actually uh, kind of the, the, the five-year downward slope, uh, I, I think ultimately we need to break decidedly out of the top end of that range, and I think that's about $160. I don't think this, loon, this news alone does that. Hmm. Um, cloud computing is all the rage, as, as Bonowin had mentioned. So, so Bonowin, does IBM, should you afford it um, the benefit of the doubt and think that it should be re-rated or that, that we might be entering a chapter in which IBM shares get re-rated because of the new focus, the new honed focus that it's got? I mean, I think there's limited upside, surely. I mean, I, clearly. So we're not talking about a new entrant growth company that's seeing 50, 60, 100 percent year-over-year revenue growth. Growth, as guy, sorry, as Tim mentioned, we're talking about mid-single digits. But this company has struggled to grow 
even marginally over the last four or five years. So if you're looking at on average of, I think they've been shrinking by about a percent and a half per year. And if we can get that to five or six percent, I, I mean, I see some limited upside there, there certainly. And then if you expect cloud computing and AI to actually have you know, slightly more robust, robust margins, I can see limited upside in the stock, surely. Guy Dami, here's a question for you. Another one. Oh, it's what, two questions the first six minutes of the show. You know, Go ahead. That's throw my it job. It's, it's my job to ask the question. <laughs> IBM today, is it more like Hewlett Packard or Microsoft when Satya Nadella oh, joined? That, that, that is, that's, that's a fantastic question. And that's the framework we've talked about IBM in over the last four or five years. We've said, you know, both Microsoft and IBM, if you go back a decade or so, were effectively doing the same thing. Microsoft pivoted. IBM didn't. IBM is clearly late to the dance. Unfortunately, I think they're late so much that Microsoft has a huge head start. I think IBM is more Hewlett Packard than Microsoft. It pains me to say that because I sort of dig IBM. I think I was born the year they went public. Uh, but I think they're more Hewlett-Packard than MSFT, Mel. Good it's question. It's a 109-year-old company, by the way. Um, for more on this big mm. <laughs> blue-chip breakup, let's bring in Jared Weisfeld, the tech sector specialist at Jefferies. Jared, great to have you with us. I'm interested to get your thoughts. I'm going to start off with the same question that I just posed to Guy. Is IBM, with its announcement today, more like, in your view, Hewlett-Packard or Microsoft when Satya Nadella joined? I probably agree with with Guy on this in terms of closer to HP. You know, when you think about what IBM is doing here, they're playing a significant amount of catch up, right? What they're doing today is to effectively hone in on the hybrid cloud market. And they've sized that market at about a trillion dollars. And to do so, they need to divest the legacy business that's been declining, call it five to six percent a year. And by the way, with that divestiture, they're actually keeping some of the cloud assets. So when you think about what this asset looks like on a go forward basis, this new code that they're calling it, it's probably going to decline a little bit faster than that. So I think there are a lot of questions in terms of what new code looks like. There weren't a lot of uh, answers on the conference call this morning, a lot of investor questions on what the pro forma capital structure looks like, how to think about the debt levels across the two. But it seems pretty clear to me that the focus is to play catch up to the, some, of, some of the large CSPs, the large, cl- the large cloud service providers like mm-hmm. Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, and they'll do so with a refined focus via M&A. When you think about the $36 billion acquisition of Red Hat, how to leverage that with this new refined structure. Can they compete, Jared, against all those cloud service providers that you had mentioned that have been in this game for so long that have dominant market share? It's going to take a long time, right? I mean, look at Google right now. Google has a ton of resources and, you know, it's a structural growth company and it's taking a long time to catch up to to Microsoft and Amazon from from a cloud service perspective. So, I think it's going to take time. It's going to take patience. And, you know, the the growth strategy that they outlined on the call today, they talked about mid-single-digit growth. This is a company that's been growing, you know, zero to one percent over the last three to five years. It's going to take a lot to accelerate that growth, which is why I think you'll probably see some inorganic um, acquisitions associated with that growth profile. Jared, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. Let me ask you, even if one is skeptical about these two businesses apart and how they're trade, shouldn't they have done this anyway, even if it has a risk of not working? I totally agree with that in terms of from, from the perspective of, of IBM, you know, this is uh, it's a relatively new CEO, even though he's been with the organization for a long amount of time. But this is the right strategic pivot from the perspective of 
thinking about how to attack the cloud market going forward. And I think, you know, regardless of the questions on capital structure, et cetera, I think strategically, it certainly makes a lot of sense when they think about what the vision looks like going forward and how to attack the hybrid cloud market, right? Microsoft realized that they had this massive install base from an enterprise perspective, and they leveraged that with Azure incredibly successfully. Now it's going to take a long time, but it certainly seems like the right strategic move. Obviously, IBM is very intent on competing in this business, Jared. So do you anticipate prices to be pressured across the board in cloud? This is um, it, it's a great question. You know, it, it's not pricing is always part of the equation. But if you're the CIO or CTO of a Fortune 500 company and you're talking about lifting and shifting your critical infrastructure to the cloud, price is just part of the consideration. So, um, you know, you're talking about, you know, five, nine reliability. You want to make sure that that those assets are never going down. So I don't anticipate that being part of uh, part of the equation. Jared, thank you. Good to see you, Jared Weisfeld. Um, Tim Seymour, so top cloud play. Uh, it's probably Google for me uh, because I, I just like the valuation there and I like the other parts of their business. Uh, I, I realize that we've been talking more and people have tended to talk more about Microsoft and, and Amazon. Uh, but, but frankly, uh, I like Google's business. I'm long it. I think YouTube is undervalued. And yeah, I think their core business uh, in search has proven to be very, very resilient and their cloud is good. All right. Let's turn from Big Blue at the breakup to that money manager marriage. Morgan Stanley buying Eaton Vance for $7 billion. Morgan Stanley CEO James Gorman telling CNBC earlier the move has been in the works for years. They have an incredible custom product uh, in Parametrics, which has been an enormous growth vehicle, uh, very good traditional asset management, uh, large in sustainability funds with the Calvert funds. So, there are a lot of, it's, it's an unusual deal in that it's highly complementary. And it's something that we've looked at for several years and the opportunity knocked and we took advantage of it. Both stocks moved higher on the deal. Uh, Karen, what do you make of it? Do you think Morgan Stanley is more attractive as a business today versus yesterday? I think it's interesting. I was surprised at, I mean, I know the stock was up a lot. It didn't seem like they were paying that much for assets. And obviously there's a lot of synergies here. So I get what they're trying to do. It makes sense. And now I think it just sets off a land grab. If you remember when Schwab bought um, Ameritrade, that started off a land grab. And Morgan Stanley, I guess they just closed last week, maybe on E-Trade. So I think we'll see that in the rest of the space. Good timing for Nelson Pelt. Or are they going deeper into a business that is slowly being, being eaten away by the ETF business, by robo-advisors, et cetera? Guy? Uh, yes, I think that's probably true. But if you go back and listen to what James Gorman has said over the years, you know, they want to be in very distinct, I think, three or four very distinct business units. And with this acquisition, he's accomplished that. I also just think he bought himself probably another three to five years at the helm of Morgan Stanley, quite frankly, as he can now tell the board, you know, you need me to integrate this deal. I, I do think it makes a lot of sense. I do think Karen is right. There's going to be a mm-hmm. land grab. Morgan Stanley was first to this dance. You know, I don't know necessarily that you, you buy Morgan Stanley on the back of this, but then you look at some of these asset managers that are still out there and you ask yourself, which one is next? I think that's how you have to play it, in my opinion. And certainly they all trade it as if there is a which one is next sort of mentality in the market, uh, Bonowin. I'm wondering at this point in time, would you say you would buy a Morgan Stanley kind of business or Goldman Sachs kind of business? Uh, I still prefer a Goldman Sachs type of business just because of um, the reputational prowess around their investment strategy. 
Now, you know, Morgan Stanley, I can understand what they're doing. I think that what you've seen is with SPAC and direct listings, you've definitely seen somewhat, I'm hesitant to call it an assault, but a limited assault on some of the uh, heritage businesses, the fee generation businesses there. So when you look back at bank earnings, you know, the last two quarters, and you're talking about trading profitability, I still think of a Goldman Sachs as being premier in class there. And for that reason, uh, that would be my preference between the two for a business that's seeming, that is seemingly transitioning into more of a retail focus. Tim? I think this is a great move. I think this is a higher multiple move. I think this is a, you definitely want to own Morgan over Goldman. And you have wanted to do it for the last two years. It's outperformed Goldman Sachs by 15% on a two-year chart. Uh, this is about recurring revenue streams that are fee-based with no risk. Uh, it takes away regulatory pressure. It takes away the balance sheet requirements. Um, and, and again, this is now uh, somewhere around $4.5 trillion of assets between MSIM and, and what they're managing on the wealth management side. It's, it's massive, and I think they, they deserve a premium over the others because I think they're going to be able to do more. Karen, do you think there is another deal in the works when it comes to asset managers? Yes, I think we'll see one. I mean, if you're, you know, a Janus or an Invesco, you're already under, you know, some scrutiny there. This just adds to it. So I don't know who it's going to be, but I do not think this is the first and only one that we will see. Come on, let's play matchmaker here. <laughs> <laughs> Guy, no. come on, play this game with me. Matchmaker. Well, do you want me to? Do you want me to sing? I mean, is that Not what you're really. looking? Not really. You can't unhear well, things. You, you brought it up. I don't think. Look, I don't think City's going to do anything. I think City's got their own problems, so they're out of the box. Uh, Goldman Sachs is clearly Goldman Sachs is trying to get away from uh, the Goldman Sachs when I was there 15 or so years ago. So maybe they're in play to do something. Um, I, th- I think Wells Fargo has too many issues right now, so you have to, have to ask yourself, who's the next big bank is going to step up? So it comes down to two. To me, it's either Goldman Sachs or Bank of America, and who they pick, I have no idea. Yeah. Tim, what do you think? I think, if anything, maybe they're looking at ETF companies. Think about the assets. ETFs are at record, uh, r- r- record AUM, um, and I think that's a, a major investment trend. So think of some of the big, big ETF houses that are still independent, and, and I think that's probably the next move. All right. We're not done with the deal talk, by the way. Coming up, one top energy analyst is calling for a mega merger in big oil. The two names he is targeting. But first, Disney throwing down the Golden State gauntlet, a major battle breaking out of a reopening in California. The full details when Fast Money returns. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. It's a small world and it's taking on a big state. Disney slamming California again today over the state's refusal to let it reopen its theme parks. Let's get to Julia Borson with the details. Julia. 
Melissa, in an escalating battle, Disney's criticizing the state of California's refusal to allow Disneyland to reopen. Chief Medical Officer of Disney's Parks, Experiences and Products Division, which of course includes Disneyland, issuing a statement today saying, quote, we absolutely reject the suggestion that reopening the Disneyland Resort is incompatible with a health-first approach. The fact is that since March, we have taken a robust science-based approach to responsibly reopening our parks and resorts across the globe. Now, this follows Governor Gavin Newsom saying yesterday in a press conference that Disney's parks won't open until COVID cases stabilize and improve. While yesterday, Los Angeles County, the county that's adjacent to Orange County, where Disneyland is, reported its biggest spike in cases in six weeks. Now, this comes after last week, Disney chairman Bob Iger resigned from Gavin Newsom's state task force for economic recovery. There was no comment from Disney on that resignation. Also last week, though, Disney announced it's laying off 28,000 employees, saying the impact of COVID on the company has been, quote, exacerbated in California by the state's unwillingness to lift restrictions that would allow Disneyland to reopen. Now, of course, I want to note here, Melissa, that Disney World in Florida has been open with limited capacity for a couple of months now. Back over to you. All right, Julia, thank you. Julia Borson, certainly this, uh, this drag is hurting shares of Disney. Tim, um, what, do you, what do you make of Disney's fight with the state. Look, I, I think Disney has to play this game on some level, and we have the numbers in Florida to compare to what may or may not be what they're missing out on California. But look, that's reality, um, and that's not the, this is not the issue around the Disney stock. Let's be clear: we've we've dealt with are they open, are they not since the beginning of COVID, and at times it's actually been seen as um, you know the 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 turnaround or the reopening trade was going to be you know somewhere out there. The more important part is what's the balance sheet look like, what's cash flow look like, and what we've been arguing in the last couple of days is. Should they be a content machine or should they continue to be the balanced you know, flywheel of consumer products, studio uh, and streaming meeting you know, the, the, the media and the cable network? So um, I actually don't think that they should try to become a content machine. I mean, Netflix still isn't profitable. So um, I, I, you know, I am someone that actually believes that Disney has been tightening their belt. Remember, the stock spiked on their last quarter numbers because, in fact, they could tighten their belt. And that's what the California news is. But it's all about streaming. And mm -hmm. Disney Plus is ahead of schedule. All right, let's let's play that game. Let's say that there are those two choices, content machine or consumer flywheel. Bonwin, what would your choice be? I think you can continue to, you know, to be the the heritage Disney brand that that it has been. Now, you can also have this auxiliary business that will become a much larger piece of a core business in streaming plus, but I think that you know, completely pivoting away from that completely changes the, the underlying brand there and, and brand recognition. Yeah. How, how does a balance sheet, in your view, Karen, look like? Um, they've got a lot of debt, right? They've got a lot of businesses that are virtually shut down at this point because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's concerning. Obviously, the debt's from the Fox deal. I think this rhetoric back and forth is sort of setting them up to announce a pretty terrible quarter. Maybe that's already priced in. Um, I do think, you know, we talked about this yesterday, should they be a content uh, machine? I think they shouldn't, but I liked, it was guys talking about ESPN, if it were to be spun off and were be able to be in the gambling business, that could maybe create some value for shareholders. Maybe it would no longer be part of Disney, but... And I also think that Dan Loeb is spot on. They should not be paying a dividend, and they have some cover to not pay a dividend. They already omitted it for the first half. So they can, they can, they're not, I mean, they're levered, but they still will have some cash. 
even if they need to borrow it to continue to build content without getting rid of everything else. Let's assume Bob Chapek, the CEO of Disney, is listening to this program tonight, Guy Dami. What would you tell him to do? He's a huge fan. He's a huge fan, as you know. Uh, well, what would I tell him? I would have told him this is what we said, by the way, a long time ago when the Fox acquisition came around. I think they gave them my numbers. I'm sure are off, but 11 percent stake or something in DraftKings. I would have tried to roll DraftKings up under one match it with ESPN. It would have been a match made in heaven. Spun that off. It would have been an incredible deal, in my opinion. Uh, and then off to the races we go. That's the clever way to rid yourself, and I use that term, of ESPN. Uh, with that said, I have, I, I'm not the CEO of Disney, so I can't tell him anything. What I will say in terms of the stock is, and we said that last night, go back to the spring of 2019. The stock couldn't get through 120 on the upside. It struggled there, struggled there, finally broke out, traded down to 120 the other day. That's your line in the sand. I think you trade Disney from the long side against that. All right, we've got much more ahead here on Fast Money. Here's what is coming up next. The energy sector may be bruised and battered, but our next guest has an eye-popping idea for a big-ticket merger that could really fuel the space. And later, pot stocks lighting up today. But will a blue wave in November mean more green for the sector? We'll get some answers to that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to Fast Money. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Just seven years ago, ExxonMobil was the world's most valuable company. But just yesterday, one of its biggest competitors, Chevron, overtook its market capitalization. It was a short-lived move, though. Exxon had a 5% gain today, helping it reclaim its top spot as America's biggest oil company. But our next guest is out with a big call on both of these names. He says these two energy titans should merge. Let's bring in longtime oil analyst Paul Sankey of Sankey Research. Paul, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. I mean, this would be talk about a mega deal. Um, I don't even know where to begin. What what would a combined company look like? Well, uh, they're about 130 billion, 140 billion each now in market cap. And as you know, uh, Exxon formerly was about three times the size, four times the size of of Chevron. And when I say recently. As early as uh, only this year, uh, January of this year, Exxon was double the size of, of Chevron. Um, it would be a very, very big U.S. oil company, but it would also be uh, one with a tremendous amount of balance sheet power. And, and one thing we like about the idea is that if Chevron was to take control, uh, you could get better on the ESG front 
and really get rid of a, a, a public relations problem at ExxonMobil where it's perceived to be uh, for better or worse, uh, well, certainly for worse, but rightly or wrongly, I should say, uh, environmental public enemy number one. Exxon has a huge public relations challenge, uh, and one solution might be, you know, to end Exxon. Would Michael Worth, the CEO of Chevron, do this? Uh, I doubt it. I mean, I think it's very difficult. I think that if this continues for another year or two, or even gets more in favor of Chevron, which is heavily preferred by the market, then it becomes a real possibility. So as of now, going into this election, uh, there's zero chance that this could happen. But I think the point of the note this morning was that this is where we've got to with Exxon. You know, this is the point of the crisis where Chevron is now bigger. Nextera is bigger than both of them, the renewables play. Uh, and the writing's on the wall for the next 50 years. These are 100-year companies. They have to think very big. And, and this is a big idea. Hey, Paul, it's Tim. There's restructuring, certainly rumored around Exxon, whether this is happening and in what ways it's happening. Is there anything here on CapEx cuts and costs that should make this stock a lot more interesting for investors that, that can be done internally in the short to medium term? Yeah, in the short term, they're cutting costs as much as they can. I mean, we highlighted this morning that there's over $10 billion a year of uh, just general and administrative costs in, in Exxon, which, of course, is such a huge company. Uh, so first thing is to cut costs. Second thing is we think they should cut CapEx even further. Only as of a year ago, it was about $40 billion a year. They're trying to get it down to $20 billion a year. We'd like to see them go down to even $15 billion a year and not worry about growing. And then the biggest question, as you know, Tim, in the market is, do they cut the dividend? Are they going to keep trying to pay this uh, enormous burden, $14 billion a year, 10% yield? Uh, they've said they will. The market doesn't believe them. If the market believed them, it wouldn't be at a 10% yield, or at least they don't. the market doesn't believe it's sustainable. Uh, if you can sustain it for 10 years, you're paid out for owning Exxon. So potentially, it's super attractive if they can make it. But at the moment, the oil market is absolutely against them. How does the landscape change, if at all, Paul, under a Biden administration for oil? It's going to be very significant because you're going to be pumping a lot of money, obviously, one way or the other into the renewables sector. And the, where my clients are making money, believe me, is, is in renewables, not in owning Exxon. Um, so the fact is that a lot of these renewable stocks still have relatively small market caps. And the amount of money that's being proposed to just be put into the general theme of becoming more carbon friendly is going to push some of these stocks to crazy valuations beyond anything that we've seen even up to now. So it should be face value very positive there. And, it, you know, a lot of people think it could be very positive for the oil price, because if you're going to limit methane emissions, methane emissions, um, if you're going to stop drilling on federal lands, that, of course, is going to reduce oil supply. And people, whilst very keen to buy into renewables, are still driving gasoline cars and hopefully still will be taking planes around the place. So oil demand is going to stay up. And really, the governments are trying to address this from a supply point of view, which I think is wrong. And in doing so, you'll, you should have a disconnect between high oil demand and falling oil supply that we think will be very bullish for this sector over the next five years. Hmm. Paul, thank you. Good to see you. Paul Sankey, Sankey Research. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Uh, Guy, Chevron for Exxon. You like it? I think Chevron's a better company. I mean, listen, you're probably talking about 120,000 combined employees. There's obviously a huge job loss associated with that, I would imagine. I don't think it's going to pass. I don't think it gets through um, the, the, the proper legal channels or the regulatory channels to approve that deal. But what do I know? In terms of the stock, so real quick, although I think Chevron's a better company, 
I think in terms of the trade, Exxon might set up better. We've said this for a while. Exxon just traded down basically the levels we saw back in March, bounced off that $30 level. I think for a trade, for the first time in a very long time, Exxon might be interesting here. Karen, you know, I think it's interesting that Paul was outlining a scenario in which under a Biden administration, both renewables and big oil goes up because of that sort of demand disconnect. We drive fossil fuel vehicles and yet want to buy Mm -hmm. renewables (laughs) um, in in terms of investments. Um, do Do you sort of buy into that thesis? Well, it does make me think, I can see the restrictions here, but it makes me think that Saudi Arabia will see uh, this is our last, maybe not our last chance, but A, you know, we're nearing the end of, uh, of fossil fuels, so we should just pump like there is no tomorrow. So I think there'll be a disconnect between uh, WTI and Brent to keep prices low, though. All right. Coming up, who says retail is dead? Take a look at all these consumer names hitting multi-year highs in today's session. So is there more upside for these stocks? The good old-fashioned game of shop it or drop it is coming your way. And later, iPhone calls, how options traders are setting up for next week's big Apple event. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back. In case you were not aware, there are just 78 days until Christmas. Yes, we are playing Christmas music here on Fast Money. And did you know some retailers already have their Christmas merchandise on display? Decorations, trees, wreaths, you name it. Check out some of these big moves in retail as we head into the holiday season. All these names hitting multi-year or record highs today. So we thought it would be the perfect time for a little game of... Shop it or drop it! That's right, shop it or drop it, retail edition. So let's kick things off with Costco. It hit an all-time high today. Uh, Chairwoman, shop it or drop it? Yes. I would actually drop it. And the reason is those numbers were so great. Those comp store sales at 16.7 and X, X uh, F, uh, gas, I think it was 15 and a half. Those are fantastic numbers. And I wonder, are they pulling forward? And if those numbers were that good and the stock only reacted like this, imagine if they don't beat by a lot what could happen to the stock. And it's expensive for itself relative to its own history. Bono, what'd you say? Uh, I hate to disagree with Karen. Maybe I should recheck my numbers here, but um, I'm shopping it. Uh, so, you know, when I, take a look at the, when I take a look at what's going on, right, the move from urban to suburban areas, I think that bodes well from Costco. And what you've seen from a lot of these retailers is that the per, the per ticket purchase item or the aggregate amount spent for each visit is continuing to increase. And then if you really just get into the numbers, right, this company continues to have robust free cash flow, manageable debt around 10, million, $10 billion or so, um, and, and it's, it's just really in a, in a strong financial situation. Free cash flow of $6 billion, cash on hand of $13 billion, and manageable debt of around $10 billion. So I think the company is positioned pretty well here. All right. Let's move on to Estee Lauder, also hitting an all-time high today. So Tim Seymour, shop it or drop it? Yeah, look, Mel, you know I'm all about beauty. I, I mean, I, I'm shopping this one. And, and if you look at this stock, first of all, we've just broken out to fresh all-time highs. Uh, a lot of this is coming global. A lot of this, the, the China strength, the China demand story, the delta on essentially their growth is coming, not surprisingly, but uh, it's back and it's back in Asia. Um, I think you know, the, the trends here are strong. The valuation, once again, not terribly uh, attractive. But uh, I think if you look at the margins and the accretion that they showed last quarter, that's what's giving the stock the ability to re-rate. I know, Guy, that I thought more than once 
uh, in the past however many years that Tim is all about beauty. I mean, that that just it comes to mind. It comes to mind, Guy. What do you what do you make of Estee Lauder? Well, when you have those steely blue eyes like he has, I mean, of course, he's all about beauty. But I would I would go. The, first of all, I don't understand the rules in, in sports. When you're <laughs> shopping a player, you're looking to get rid of him. OK, so when you're shopping, you're actually looking to purge. But that's neither here nor there. I would rename the game, number one. Number two, I would drop Estee Lauder like it's hot. Just take this into consideration. Goldman Sachs had a sell rating on this stock at the end of September. They upgraded it to neutral. I mean, they finally caught up. But valuation is ridiculous. I understand the China growth, but they better sell a lot of eyeliner because to grow into that valuation... It's going to take a lot, Mel. S- I'm surprised in that entire monologue that you just gave that you didn't say anything about the Christmas music at the top of the segment. And the uh, countdown to Christmas. Christmas. Because I'm as much as you're in my head, I'm in your head. And I knew that you knew that I knew I was going to say something <laughs> about that. So I decided not to. That's what I'm because it's not the holiday season. Okay. Unless your holiday is uh, Halloween, it ain't the holiday season. There's always a holiday. There's always a holiday. And even though it supposedly doesn't tweak you, we're still going to do it. Countdown and Christmas music. Um, Shares of Gap, by the way, touching its highest level today since May of last year. Bonoan, do you shop it or drop it here? Dropping it or purging it, as Guy would say. I mean, I think Barclays raised the price target to about $20. It's currently trading there. I've told you what I feel about retail and, like, the uh, in-person shopping experience. And I think these people have they've been a laggard in terms of moving to the digital platform. So I, I'm dropping them. Tim, on the gap, what would you do? Uh, definitely shopping it. And I know that's hard to do, as, as we say, that you make the most money when things go from terrible to just bad. That's been the story of the gap so far. But uh, restructuring underway, certainly uh, what's going on in malls has forced them to close stores, become a little bit leaner. But uh, Athleta, for sure, and, and guys spending a lot of money on Yeezys. Um, and therefore, I, I do think that there is something that you can latch onto at the gap here, even though uh, we've seen a major run. I don't even know if he knows what those are. Um, yeah, I got, I got, well, no, I mean, I have my, yeah, I wear my Yeezys to bed. (laughs) Okay. Um, (laughs) last but not least here with 78 days left till Christmas, Dollar General hit all time highs. Guy, shop it or drop it. Are you a fan of the fast money, Mel? I'm sure you are, as you've been the host of the show now for over 11 years of memory serves. And you know, for a fact that this is a name we've talked about in earnest for literally the last couple of years. There was probably some power pitch along the way. It's had a huge run. Valuations might be stretched, but you know what? Fire the graphics. I am still shopping there, and I'm still shopping it. All right. Coming up, Potsdam's blazing higher following last night's vice presidential debate. The four words uttered on the debate stage that got the group all fired up. Plus, We're counting down to next week's big Apple event. The company expected to unveil its next iPhone. How options traders are playing the tech giant into next week. Much more fast right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Cannabis stocks burning higher today following last night's vice presidential debate. And in case you missed it, here's the moment that lit a new fire under this trade. We will decriminalize marijuana. And we will we will expunge the records of those who have been convicted of marijuana. Tim, what's your take decriminalizing marijuana? 
It's, it's a complex issue. It's certainly, I think, the biggest issue on the federal level. And, and, and I don't think that investors need to be that focused on it. In fact, what I tweeted out today is I think federal legalization is, is optionality on a story. The more important legislative ballot uh, dynamic is that you get two major states in Arizona and New Jersey that are going to come online for full adult markets. These are uh, going to be massive markets, as you can imagine, in the Northeast. And then soon you're going to have New York and the entire Northeast to follow. The most important thing for cannabis investors that's different about now and, and where we were 18 months ago is that the top four or five plays, and we've had these CEOs on our show, uh, are growing anywhere from 20 to 40 percent. Uh, where else in growth industries are you getting this kind of growth? And they're trading it, you know, 11, 12 times 2021 EBITDA. And, and so the profitability is there. Uh, the states and the addressable market, states' laws and states' rights have allowed this industry to continue to grow despite all the difficulty on accounting and, and obviously banking and certainly no capital markets. But the story is very bullish. Federal is optionality as far as I'm concerned. And you're seeing that in the stocks over the last couple of days as people are trying to price in uh, you know, a blue wave or not. Um, you can see that in the volumes of these stocks. We talked about Truly, we talked about GTI, we talked about Cresco, Cureleaf, Terrison. These stocks are all moving 25% over the last seven or eight days. Yeah, I mean, is it is it just as good though for, for the multi-state operators? And I thought the argument had always been that these guys built their little fiefdoms within each state. They amassed licenses, et cetera, and, and they've got a good thing going. But once you open it up to the federal level, you can basically pave the way for a Walmart of cannabis to be created or an Amazon of cannabis. Well, I, I think the, the first thing is, is the states may still, in fact, control uh, the number of licenses. And again, the reason why this is a profitable business is uh, many of these states are limited licensed states that are forcing vertical integration within that state, which makes those folks. The best thing that the government can do is change taxation and allow more the, the more act, which would allow banking and the ability for uh, large institutional investors, for large banks. Uh, and and I, I think those are the biggest dynamics. But I don't think the industry is fearful of the lateral players coming in, even though the argument is this is one of the largest consumer products stories of a generation. It, it is, and they'll be here, but that's not what the companies are worried about. All right. Up next, big bets on the options market ahead of next week's key Apple event. We'll bring you the action coming up at the top of the hour. Mad Money's Jim Cramer sitting down with the Domino's Pizza CEO after the company failed to deliver on earnings. Be sure to catch that interview, 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Much more fast straight ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. We are just five days away from Apple's next big event. The company expected to unveil its latest line of iPhones this Tuesday. Over in the options market, traders are betting the event could lead to some big gains in the stock. Bonowin has the action. Take it away, Bonowin. Thank you. So leading into uh, next week, what we're seeing is calls outpace puts about three times to one. And taking it a step further, if we take a look at the at-the-money straddle expiring next week, we'll see that the options are implying a 5% move in either direction between now and, uh, and uh, October X free, which is next Friday. And the trade that really stuck out to me was about 40,000 of the October 115 or at the money calls traded about 315. Now, a block of these actually looks sold, but the nuanced angle here is that those traded mid market. So someone was gladly willing to take those down. And so you're risking about two and a half percent here, putting your break even at 118.15 or about two and a half percent. Keep in mind that the stock has moved about two and a half percent over the last 20 days of trading. I like playing it from the long position here. Yeah. Karen, how do you feel about this event? I, I, I'm not sure how you look at the stock because the stock in the month of September was down a little bit more than 8% or so. Um, but there had a, obviously a huge run up prior. It, was that run up the anticipation to this moment 
in terms of the 5G phone? Yeah, I think so. It was also the market and it was also, um, you know, the, the dynamic of the Fed and, and the, there is no alternative even for a high multiple stock. So it was all of those things together. It's bounced back a lot. I'm long. I am a little concerned about the valuation here. And so I'd be looking to sell calls into either this event or earnings, um, which are, I think, at the end of the month, and just take a little bit of money off the table. Is this sell the news guy? I believe so. I'll let Tim answer. I got. I haven't. I, I thought about what the game should be. By the way, Melms, as I've been sitting here shop instead of shop it or drop it. Yes. Yeah, which makes no sense. Watch what I'm going to do here. <laughs> this is the holiday version. You're going to love this. You ready? Yes. Elf it or shelf it. What does elfing something mean? That's meaningless. Elfing Elf something is shelf. meaningless. Elf no, is, a, not, is a no, is a noun. It's, it's not a verb. <laughs> You know something? Okay, fine. Uh, you know that's why I'm fun, and sometimes you're just not fun. Elf it or shelf it. You're going to use it next time, and you're going to think of me. Just saying. Do you have a comment on Apple, please? Tim does. <laughs> Tim, please <laughs> save us. Um, elfing. Let's see. Uh, hopefully, that's not in the Urban Dictionary. So, uh, you know, my view on Apple is that you, you first off, you look at the chart, you have an opportunity to see it pull back to the 90, 95 area. I think the valuation is tough. I don't know if it's going to get back there. And in fact, I think in the current environment, there's enough support for the stock. I think the valuation at, you know, 25 times forward uh, or so where it's come back to is a, a level it's going to settle into. But there's, to me, it's very, it's almost impossible for them to actually deliver on the upside on this iPhone release. And I think, you know, therefore, uh, I would expect a disappointment. Their dictionary site's going to crash. Um, for more options action, be sure to tune into the full show tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trade. Time for the Final Trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Yeah, this Morgan Stanley uh, deal today, I think, does continue a multiple expansion and upgrades the credit of the company. So I like this deal. Karen Feinerman. Yes, I always say if you go home long, it's the same as buying it on the close. So I went home long target, which is the same as buying it right here. They deserve the higher multiple they've gotten. Bono and Eisen. If you're looking for a way to play the cannabis space on the long side and you don't have Tim Seymour on speed dial to break down the final points for you, look at MJ, Alternative Harvest ETF. <laughs> Guy Dami, 78 days left till Christmas. Hey, Melms. Have you, ho, ho. Have you seen Tenant Healthcare since the J.P. Morgan downgrade? I know you have because we talked about it. Mm -hmm. THC breaking out once again. All right. Thanks for watching Fast. See you back here tomorrow at 5. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.